continue forward in the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 4. The title is Understanding and Responding to Persecution. This is part 3 of this little sermon series, if you will. And today's uh, sermon is Corporate Kingdom Prayer. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 37 in chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite 
of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So, are you blessed? Are you blessed? There's a lot of talk about that in today's world. Are you blessed? Supremely blessed is what this Greek word gets at. The top, the summit of blessing. Fortunate, well-off, happy. So, are you blessed? When you think of being supremely blessed, what is in your mind? When you imagine being well-off, what situation do you see in your mind? Are you happy? What will make you happy? Here's what Jesus said should make us think of being supremely blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think if we're honest, we'll all say that the things that were on our mind about blessedness, probably persecution wasn't on the top of that list, was it? You know, it's the very last thing there listed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about blessedness. And if you think of it as climbing a ladder of blessedness, could it be that the height of blessedness for Christians is found in going through persecution with faith? It's the martyrs, indeed, that are the ones closest to God there in Revelation, right there under the altar. So we don't go out and pick fights, right? We obey Jesus, and we seek to do His will, and sometimes that leads to conflict and persecution. Brothers and sisters, we want to have the right attitude ahead of time if this happens, to rejoice and to give thanks. And so today, we continue to learn from the early church, how did they respond to persecution? What were the elements of their response, and how can we walk in their example? And what we don't see is complaining and grumbling and fretting and running away and making human plans to deal with what they were going through. In fact, you could say they were understanding that they were blessed. You see that in this prayer. It's woven through this prayer they pray that they're aware that they're blessed with one another and with God as their Father. Last week, we looked at part two of this, together with one accord. And so we really kind of dove into that idea, you recall, I'll read it again. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said. So we looked at the, if you will, the momentum of who they are in Christ, what they're committed to together, the persecution that's arisen, and how it leads them to this moment of prayer that we're going to look at today. The church at that moment, how is that church characterized? It is of one mind and one heart. They're all together. They understand who Christ is. They know that he was crucified, that he had to be crucified, and that he was resurrected, and that he ascended. They know these things. 
They know His commands to them, what they are to be doing, and even where they're to be doing it. And they are in perfect agreement at this time over who He is, what He has accomplished, and what they are to do to obey Him. They also know the Sanhedrin's power and threats. Recall, this is the same body that, hand in hand with the Romans, put Jesus to death. They know they have been commanded to disobey Jesus or face terrible consequences. They really have no reason to think that they too would not be crucified. And they know Jesus will support and defend his people as they obey him against all threats of every kind. And this threatened community of shared faith then comes together to cry out to God in corporate kingdom prayer. The only reason they knew that some of them would survive is because of the kingdom. You see? It wasn't about individual safety. It wasn't about family safety. It wasn't about individual or family property or even being alive. It was about the kingdom of God, and that is where their prayers had success. They are caught up in the powerful, spirit-wrought momentum of corporate unity and obedience in the kingdom of God as the children of God with His will and His divine desires as their greatest focus. They're not distracted by the baubles and the lies of this world. They are fully on board with God's kingdom. So how do they respond to this first great persecution? They stay together. This is what we saw last week. They stay together. Peter and John, they didn't run back to, the gen, to, to Galilee where they'd come from. Where did they go? They went back to their own. They considered their own as those people right there in Jerusalem, the other believers. It's important for us to consider that moment that Peter and John faced. How did they do that? Why did they not run away? Do we run away sometimes? We looked at that last week. They don't just come together. They also share all the threats that they're facing. So, you know, there's going to be that temptation, as we discussed last week, when there's major threats against you or your family, to keep it to yourself. Notice how they kept the threats together as one body. It wasn't just a threat against Peter and John. They didn't kick Peter and John out and say, well, you guys are in trouble. You know, I think you may have overreacted there with the Sanhedrin and you know, you need to go deal with that. No, no, no. It was a shared threat. So Peter and John didn't keep it to themselves, and they all shared it together. And when this happens, when this community comes together at this point in time, they cry out to God in prayer. They get the situation before their eyes, and then they cry out to God in prayer. They didn't form committees. They didn't make a list of things that need to be done. They cry out to God in prayer. And today we're going to look at that prayer and the overall structure of that prayer and by God's grace learn some very basic principles of corporate kingdom prayer that hopefully will guide each one of us all the days of our lives as we deal with persecution. First, they appeal to God as creator, looking to his power. And next, they appeal to God's word, to his scripture. They're looking for his promises. So corporate kingdom prayer brings together God's power and God's promises as the foundation, as the introduction to the prayer. 
And then they lay out the situation. They express the persecution to God based upon Scripture. Scripture itself is used to define the situation. This is still the introductory section, if you will, of the prayer, laying it out before God. They trust in God's sovereign wisdom, love, and power. Again, all of this is still a part of the introductory section of the prayer. When I say introductory, I mean they haven't asked for anything yet. They acknowledge the threats, and in this section comes their first request. God, look on these threats. They ask the Lord Jesus to join them in these threats. Of course, he saw them beforehand. And then they have two very direct supplications for boldness from God to overcome fear. And we'll talk about what they didn't ask for. And then they also ask for healing signs and wonders. They ask for the power of heaven to be displayed on earth in tandem with the preaching of the word of God. Observable works of God in the here and now to accompany the preaching of the word. So that's the shape of their prayer. Let's look at it more closely. Verse 24b says, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. First they say, Lord, you are God. Now, did you come to church today because you needed to be reminded that the Lord is God? Probably not. You knew that before you got here. Did they know it before they prayed it? Yes, they did. But think about the situation they're in. The Sanhedrin has positioned itself as God, asserting its power and its authority to give and take reputation, property, and life according to its own decrees. This organization is treating itself as the God of that place. Faced with this godlike threat of the Sanhedrin, the people of God first proclaim aloud the reality that only the Lord is God. And if you think about it, this is the anti-idolatry cry. This is where the anti-idolatry first begins. Lord, you are God. Such a cry refuses to bow down and worship false gods no matter what may occur. And when you think of the power that was at the disposal of the Sanhedrin and, you know, by extension, the Roman government, you think about what they were facing, that's a lot of power. But what is it compared to today's powers that we face? Do you think the Sanhedrin at that time was more powerful and more extensive than the halls of apostate religion are today in our culture? Do you think the Roman government of that time had more intelligence and more power and more ability to deliver death on demand than our apostate civil governments today? Or do you think that if they were tempted to give way to the Sanhedrin and the Romans, how much more so will we be tempted to view this world and its institutions as godlike? As satellites circle the earth, as infrared cameras penetrate our homes, as every communication we speak can be recorded probably even now because of the phones in your pockets. What kind of threats do we face as the people of God in today's world? Arguing from lesser to greater, I would say that we, even more than them, need to cry out at the beginning of all of our prayers, Lord, you are God. 
not the United States of America, not the Supreme Court of the United States of America, not any of these apostate religious organizations that are crying out against the word of God and against his Messiah. Lord, you are God. Do you see that? We really need to remind ourselves of this because of what we face and what we see. And then from that, they begin their prayer by returning to Genesis chapter 1, proclaiming the invincible might of God, creator of all. And brothers and sisters, when you go through the word of God, you will see this over and over again. In fact, it happens so often, it's easy to miss it. It's easy to miss how frequently the prayers of the people of God and the the prophets and in the Psalms have this component to it. We need to start with the power of God. Commentary says, in the visible world, it is easy to observe. So this is where we stand back and we say, when we meditate upon God as creator, it's good for our souls. It informs our prayers and it brings us to our prayers with great confidence. Listen to all the things that this particular commentary points out about God as creator. Number one, great variety. Several sorts of beings vastly differing in their nature and constitution from each other. Lord, how manifold are thy works and all good. Number two, great beauty. The azure sky and verdant earth are charming to the eye of the curious spectator. Much more the ornaments of both. How transcendent then must the beauty of the creator be. Number three, great exactness and accuracy. To those that with the help of microscopes narrowly look into the works of nature, they appear far more fine than any of the works of art. Number four, great power. It is not a lump of dead and inactive matter, but there is virtue more or less in every creature. The earth itself, the earth itself has a magnetic power. Number five, great order. A mutual dependence of beings, an exact harmony of motions, and an admirable chain and connection of causes. Number six, great mystery. There are phenomena in nature which cannot be solved, secrets which cannot be fathomed nor accounted for, but from what we see of heaven and earth, we may easily enough infer the eternal power and Godhead of the great creator and may furnish ourselves with abundant matter for his praises. And let our make and place as men remind us of our duty as Christians, which is always to keep heaven in our eye and earth under our feet. So when we begin a prayer, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, we are stirring up in our minds the recollection of creation and the great power of God And in his wisdom, and in his power, and in his creativity, all of his decrees are being brought to pass with perfect precision at each and every moment. The Sanhedrin has their decrees and their powers and their creative schemes. They have nothing compared to the creator of all things. Remember to whom we are praying. So by returning to creation, they look to God as father of all the universe, with a might that is invincible and not just kind of invincible. It is the comparison between the sun blazing in all of its might and a match that you might strike and get a brief spark. There is no power that approaches his power. We Christians distinguish ourselves from the heathen 
that while they worship gods in which they have made, we are worshiping the God that made us and all the world. The God of creation is the unmade maker of all. And those who worship Him as Almighty Creator, brothers and sisters, we are comforted when threatened. Going on in the commentary, it is very proper to begin our prayers as well as our creed with the acknowledgement of this, that God is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Though the apostles were at this time full of the mystery of the world's redemption, yet they did not forget nor overlook the history of the world's creation. For the Christian religion was intended to confirm and improve, not to eclipse or jostle out the truths and dictates of natural religion. It is a great encouragement to God's servants, both in doing work and suffering work, that they serve the God that made all things and therefore has the disposal of their times and all events concerning them and is able to strengthen them under all their difficulties. And if we give Him the glory of this, we may take the comfort of it. So these saints are not discouraged. They are not complaining. They are not grumbling. They're not wondering why Peter and John have brought them into the wilderness to kill them. They're not asking to go back to the food and the water and the safety of Egypt. They're moving forward and they're trusting God. Faced with severest of threatenings from their nation's greatest political and ecclesiastical power, instead of complaining and grumbling and focusing upon the might of the Sanhedrin and by influence the Romans, We need to be reasonable here. We need to be careful here. We need to see what we're dealing with. They lift their eyes to God, who alone is invincible. These other people don't know who they're dealing with. That's the attitude of Christians doing the will of God. This has been the cry of all faith-filled saints throughout history. Listen to Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither sleep, slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore the Creator who spoke everything into existence with His Word, neither does He sleep nor slumber, nor does He ever take His eye off of you or any of His beloved children. It's most important for us to remember God's mighty power when we come together in prayer. Amen. Next that they focus on in prayer is Scripture, Psalm 2, which we looked at. Scripture as the foundation for prayer, as we've already seen in noting God's power, but also in searching for God's promises. Brothers and sisters, when we pray, we need to know not only that God is mighty, but that He has made promises to us right here and now that we can rely upon when we pray, just like they did. And we can expect to see God move in time and space like they did. 
Verse 25 and 26. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Psalm 2 is quoted. They quote this scripture, Psalm 2 verses 1 and 2, as the basis for their understanding of their current situation. By doing so, they're also showing forth their understanding and their reliance upon the rest of the principles in Psalm 2, which we'll look at again today briefly. And it goes on to answer the question that's posed here by David in these two verses. They looked to God's word. They held on to his promises given to them in Psalm 2, praying to him according to these promises. Here they bring together God's power with his promises. They start in Genesis, just like all the prophets and saints through history, referring to his mighty power in creation. And then they come to look at his promises for them in that situation. And what is the promise of focus for them It's a simple, single promise of focus from Psalm 2. That all the plots and all the powers combined together of all the earth's mightiest nations, peoples, kings, rulers, United Nations, World Health Organization, you keep on making your list. All of the plots and powers of the earth's combined forces of human effort against Jesus are pure futility. That is the promise that they go to and they stand on. Our mighty God, the one who made all things, has promised that it is pure futility for any power to resist Jesus. Simple, isn't it? That's simple. Calvin says, they descend now into the second member that they ask nothing but that which God has promised to perform so that His will and power are joined together. To the end, they may fully assure themselves that they shall obtain their request. You hear that? That they may fully assure themselves that they shall obtain their request. That's one of your preacher's goals today, is that we will be there. That we shall fully be fully assured that we shall obtain our requests because of these principles, praying according to these principles. Going on with Calvin. And because the kingdom of Christ is now in hand, they make rehearsal of the promise of God wherein He promises to defend and maintain the same, so that when the whole world has done what it can to overthrow, yet all shall be in vain. And herein appears their godliness and sincere zeal, and that they are not so much careful for their own safety as for the increasing and advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Do you see this? When we're focused on God and His glory and His power and His kingdom's success and the promises He's made regarding His kingdom's his kingdom success and the vanity of resistance, it frees us to pray these kingdom prayers. But if you're worried about whether you die and your reputation or whether things get established in your little dream world the way you want them to be established, if that's what drives your prayers, don't expect answers. Do not expect answers. Expect frustrations until such time as you get to the spot where this church was. Focused on God's kingdom. God's will. He is so good to frustrate us when we go after that which is not his kingdom. He's so good not to answer those prayers. We ask for serpents, he doesn't give them to us. We ask for stones, what does he give us? Bread. He's good. All right, so the first thing that happens here 
They've gone through God's power. They've talked about God's promises. And now they go further to define the situation with perfect clarity. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So this is likely what they had concluded together in their conversation when they were discussing the threats. They had likely gone to the word and understood this even before they prayed. So they're like, okay, Lord, here we are. This is the fulfillment. Their prayer defines the fulfillment of Psalm 2 in the futile attempts. So they're pointing the futility at this group that's gathered together, Herod, Pilate, and the Romans, and the Jews. They're trying to destroy Christ and his kingdom. The crucifixion of Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. They make it very clear. They know this, and they are focused upon Christ and his glory, not themselves, not their own safety, but the success of his kingdom. Their personal protection is secondary to their personal mission to do God's will. Of course, they have to know, you and I have to know, that God will not allow for all of his people to be wiped off this earth. Nor will he allow for his word to be removed from this earth. He will not allow for his people who are doing his will to not have that which they need to do his will. What's the promise? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Their personal protection is secondary to their personal mission to do God's will. Their focus is upon the threat to the kingdom. This is what they care about. They care about getting the kingdom work done and advanced in the earth like Jesus told them to. As they bring together the power and the promises of God in their corporate prayer, they do so to focus upon praying against the threats to the kingdom. Psalm 2, 1 through 3, you'll hear it again. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is the text quoted in this prayer. So they apply the futility of the prophecy of Psalm 2 to the current enemies of Christ right there at that time. They bring the promise of Scripture into their current situation. Why are the plots against Christ vain? Why are they vain? Because the Lord is God, the creator of all, and his might is unmatched, and he has set his son on heaven's throne and given him all the earth as his inheritance. And all the rulers of the earth are under his sovereign power and plan, and they will submit or be destroyed. This is what they know to be true, and they're bringing that reality into this situation. Listen to the rest of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So these promises of the Father's work placing Christ on the throne of heaven 
The promise that this same Jesus, the resistance against him is futile because these things will come to pass. The ends of the earth are his. The nations are his. And all resistance against him will ultimately be met with destruction. They know this to be true. And it is in their prayer. And they go on to voice it even further with the next section demonstrating their trust in God's sovereign wisdom, His love, and His power. And they say it like this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Their prayer goes on to express their trust in God's perfect sovereignty over all things, even over the diabolical murder of Jesus, their Messiah. They are filled with trust in God's love and in His power and in His wisdom. They continue in their reference to Psalm 2. It's an indirect reference where it says, I will declare the decree. I will declare the decree. That is a reference to God's foreordaining power, to his providence in the earth, which he carries out. They're lifting up God's sovereign providence over all things, and specifically over their current situation. The unholy alliance of the Jews and the Romans the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and their current persecution are all part of God's great plan foretold throughout the Bible, but particularly in Psalm 2. So as we pray, as we have corporate kingdom prayer, this is also a principle that comes forth in the prayers of God's people, not just His power, not just His promises, not just seeing the situation we're in as an example of what he's doing in the earth, but understanding that he is the one who has ordained it since all time began. Bringing that knowledge of who he is into our prayers before we even go to him to ask him for anything. Commentary says, the Jerusalem believers affirm in the final statement of the first part of the prayer that God had worked out his plan in the history of the opposition to Jesus, which they had just reviewed. This verb tense expresses the purpose that God accomplished with the conspiracy of Herod, Antipas, and Pontius Pilate who executed Jesus. So God accomplished his purpose through their actions. Jesus' death was an event that happened as the result of what God's power and God's plan had decided before that. God's power and God's plan. This verb tense translated as decided beforehand refers to what God had decided before it had ever happened. God had predetermined Christ's death. Herod Antipas and Pilate were instruments in God's hand. In the context of the quotation of Psalm 2, the believers assert that the psalm had announced in the past what God had decided should take place and what in truth did take place when Jesus was arrested, interrogated, and condemned to die crucifixion and so can we say that all evil rulers set up against Christ do so in futility yes can we say that all evil, evil rulers who set themselves up against the Lord and his kingdom that this is according to his eternal decrees and that this is what he is doing in the earth And can we therefore respond the same way that they responded? Yes, we can. So the introduction of this prayer that we've looked at so far points to God's power, God's promises, 
and God's providence. These are the key components we see in prayer that rightly responds to persecution. His power, knowing His power, His promises, knowing His word, and His providence in all things. These are the key components to corporate kingdom prayer. They are settled in God as a people. They are fully confident that He will hear their supplications. And they're ready now, finally, to make supplication with full confidence. The supplications begin. So the question I would ask us is how often do we run to supplications before we adore God and proclaim aloud His might and His power in our prayers? How often do we run to the supplication section before we speak aloud to God His promises? Remembering from His Word what He's promised. How often do we run to supplication portion of prayer before we rest in His providence? That this is what He is doing. So we want to take care, it seems to me, to see this process that God takes His people through in corporate kingdom prayer, especially in the context of persecution. In addition, we should be searching for the intersection of our own situation with biblical principles. You see, they did this. We want to understand our current situation from Scripture, like they did. Because as we read, as we heard in Ecclesiastes 1, history repeats itself. The same principles that are in play here, the devil's playbook, there are the devil's schemes. And this is one of his schemes. This is how he works. Alright, so their first request is for the Lord to look on their threats. They're acknowledging the threats, and in that implied is humbly acknowledging our temptation to give way to the threats. I mean, it's easy here today right now to think, oh, well, I would be just like them. But no, really, you might run away. You might get on your donkey and go back to Galilee when the trouble hits. Don't even fool yourself into thinking that that's not what you would do. Okay? You do not know yourself or your faith until you face this. So let's just be humble. And, and like them, say, Lord, we need your help. So the first petition, humbly ask God to look with them upon these severe threats. The implication is that once God fully engages with these threats, he will act on behalf of Christ. Of course, he sees it already. But this is them kind of joining together looking at these threats together with Jesus from his throne. So the implication of of this petition from the commentary is that when God turns his attention to the threats of the Sanhedrin, that he will intervene on their behalf. So you know how it is in prayer when you ask God to look at something. Of course he already sees it. But what you're doing is you're joining with him. You're looking at it simultaneously with him, together with him. That's meaningful to us and to God. Also, their prayer here acknowledges that these threats are strong enough to terrify them into cowardly retreat and silence. Certainly Peter knows this, doesn't he? They believe God, but they know they need His mighty assistance to continue to obey Him. They need a miracle from heaven to overcome this godlike threat on earth. So this leads to their next petition that comes next. But the first petition is just... Jesus, can we just join together with you and just look at this threat together? It's like, you know, when a little kid comes screaming to you and says, look, look, it's a snake, it's a snake. And there's some comfort when the child realizes that the parent is looking at it with them and they're in it together. 
We know God sees ahead of time, but there's comfort for us when we run to our Father in heaven and declare to Him the threats that we are facing and join in looking at those threats together with Him at that moment before the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. You had a time of need yesterday. You'll have a time of need today. You'll have a time of need tomorrow. This is their time of need. Commentary says about this, They do not dictate to God what he shall do, but they refer themselves to him like Hezekiah did. Isaiah 37, 17 says, Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see. Thou knowest what they say. Thou beholdest mischief and spite. And then in Psalm 10, To thee we appeal. Behold their threatenings, and either tie their hands or turn their hearts. Make their wrath as far as it is let loose to praise thee, and the remainder thereof do thou restrain. That's actually Psalm 76. So there's, this is the way Christians have prayed throughout history, is to go to the Lord when they're threatened. It is a comfort to us that if we be unjustly threatened and bear it patiently, we may make ourselves easy by spreading the case before the Lord and leaving it with Him. So we take the case to the Lord and we leave it with Him. So here's the focus, their first Major request is for boldness from God to overcome fear. This is a humble request. The text says, And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. He is the master. They are not their own masters. They are the servants of God. And they ask him for help to be able to carry out what he has commanded them to do. Lord, this is hard. We are afraid of what we might go through. And and there's good reason for that. We could stop now and talk for hours and tell all the stories of the martyrs, couldn't we? And what Christians have been through at the hands of evil people who hate God. And did some of them face this? Yes, indeed they did. What will happen to James, the brother of John? Did anybody know? Who killed James, the brother of John? Herod. How did he kill him? the sword is one of the sons of thunder here praying at this time so well did they know they needed boldness because these threats are real they are not academic threats they're real threats so we have this simple request based upon their humble acknowledgement of real need the threats are terrible they know the terror is meant to silence them they know they could avoid these threats if they just shut up about Jesus and went home So they ask God for boldness to continue to speak His Word where He told them to be. They can't just run back to Galilee in some quiet little corner of Galilee and speak His Word boldly. God told them to, Jesus told them to be in Jerusalem. So they ask for this boldness. Note what they didn't ask for. We really need to pay attention to this. They did not ask God to destroy all their enemies. That's an okay prayer. We see that in scriptures. But that's not what their first request is. But rather they wanted the grace to courageously face the enemies as ambassadors of Christ. It's as if they understood that a part of this process for God's church is that some of them were going to be killed. Some of them were going to be tortured. And that he wasn't just going to immediately eliminate all of their enemies off the face of the earth. It's not typically how things work. They knew 
that Jesus had said, take up your cross and follow me. The commentary says, note, in threatening times, our care should not be so much that troubles may be prevented as that we may be enabled to go on with cheerfulness and resolution in our work and duty, whatever troubles we may meet with. Their prayer is not, Lord, behold their threatenings and frighten them and stop their mouths and fill their faces with shame, but behold their threatenings and animate us, open our mouths and fill our hearts with courage. They do not pray, Lord, give us a fair opportunity to retire from our work now that it has become dangerous, but Lord, give us grace to go on in our work and not to be afraid of the face of man. Quit ye like a man. Stand firm like a man. It's not about the results. Do we see this? Their first concern is, oh God, may we be faithful to you. Their first concern was upon themselves and their own sin and their own selfishness and their own propensity to give way to these threats because of their sinfulness. Yes, we know that we get to these prayers to destroy our enemies, but brothers and sisters, what this prayer takes in, I will posit to you today, put this in your pocket. The greatest enemy is within you. The greatest enemy to kingdom advancement is within us. This is, they're, they're aware of this. Peter Look what Peter did. It's so fresh in their minds. They're, they've been humbled by their own complete inability, their own selfishness, their own lack of faith, their own pride. Oh, I can handle this. Lord, I'll, I'll follow you anywhere. Oh, yeah? And then he's running away and weeping like a baby afterwards. Brothers and sisters, this is the prayer of people living in reality. There's no need for God to destroy the enemies if they're not going to go out and preach the gospel. Let's get that right first. Let's go out and live and preach the gospel first. Next, after they humbly ask for this, well, let me read the commentary. <clears throat> Note, in threatening times, our care should not be so much that troubles may be prevented as that we may be enabled to go on with cheerfulness and resolution in our work and duty. I wanted to emphasize that to us again, that simple idea of just being faithful in our duties in the midst of difficulties. Their next prayer, the next thing they ask for, is healing, signs, and wonders. By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You know, I think in many ways the book of Acts can be put into these two categories as we go through the remainder of the book of Acts is seeing God giving boldness to his people and God stretching forth his hand to do mighty things along the way as they're faithful to him. They're going to face persecution all the way through to the end of the book of Acts, just like we still do, just like the church has through all of history. But these two things are in place throughout the entire book of Acts. How much do you think about this? How much of this, is this a part of your prayers? It seems to me, in my personal experience as a Christian through the years, that this is perhaps a neglected aspect of prayer, particularly prayer in the midst of persecution. 
They've seen the wondrous combination of miracles and God's word preached. They've seen it happen with the man who, was, who couldn't walk and he's healed and they're preaching. They've seen this combination. They saw Jesus do it. So they asked God to continue to stretch out his hand from heaven unto more healings, more signs, and more wonders in Jesus' name. They glorify Christ as God's holy servant in this prayer. And what do they desire? They desire faithfulness to do God's will, this boldness. And they ask God to glorify the name of Jesus by healings, signs, and wonders. They're not interested in their own ministry name. They're not like, oh, Lord, make sure that I get some credit here. Make sure that people, you know, my hometown folks back in Galilee don't end up making fun of me forever and they realize that I'm actually into something good. No. Glorify the name of Jesus is what they want. He must increase. We must decrease. Commentary says, Nothing emboldens faithful ministers more in their work than the tokens of God's presence with them and a divine power going along with them. Terry, have we seen some of that lately? We have, brother, haven't we? You know, Terry and I have been praying a lot together lately. Praise be to God. And we, we could just write down a list. Of, and we do that when we're together. We write down the list of answered prayers. Things that we've seen God do that we asked him to do that we didn't have anything to do with. God did it after we asked him to do it. Hallelujah. Going on with the commentary. They pray, one, that God would stretch forth his hand to heal both the bodies and souls of men. Else in vain do they stretch forth their hands, either in preaching or in curing. Number two, that signs and wonders might be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. And that word servant is the same word for child. Which would be convincing to the people and confounding to the enemies. Christ had promised them a power to work miracles for the proof of their commission in Mark 16. Yet they must pray for it. And though they had it, they must pray for the continuance of it. Christ himself must ask and it shall be given him. Other, observe, it is the honor of Christ that they aim at in this request that the wonders might be done by the name of Jesus, the holy child Jesus, and his name shall have all the glory. And so, yes, there are certain types of sign miracles that occurred then as a part of the ongoing canon uh, being open at that time, and that the closing of the canon does close off some forms of signs and wonders. And that's a a hard thing to define, and it's a topic that deserves more study. But not all miracles ceased at that time. I am not a cessationist, and neither should you be. There are far too many examples throughout history of God answering this prayer. Not only in the book of Acts, not only throughout the New Testament, but throughout church history. And we should not read this as saying that God no longer does divine interventions in the world. The most, most obvious of which is going to be the rapid change and transformation of a person's heart and mind when you pray for them. And that, that is the greatest thing that we should be asking for, is that God will rapidly transform our own hearts and our own minds, accelerate our sanctification, and do that for his people and for his church and for our loved ones and for all the people around us that do not know Jesus. And that he would strike his strike his mighty law into their hearts and bring conviction of sin and bring forth faith in their souls to know that Jesus has died for them. This is where we want to focus our prayers in terms of this divine action. God, please accompany the preaching of your word with the presence of your spirit to take the word preached and penetrate minds and hearts unto salvation. Changed lives, new relationships, healthier churches, Cultural transformation. 
But in addition to that, we can ask for mighty miracles. We can ask for mighty healings. It has occurred. We can ask for miracles to be done. And why not expect such a thing to occur? Well, because we're Presbyterian. We're the frozen chosen. We don't believe in that kind of stuff. That's too kind of scary subjective. Please, jettison that nonsense from your mind and let the Word of God guide your thinking on these matters. Who knows what the Lord may do? Who knows who may be miraculously healed of an illness because you pray for them in faith and ask it to be done to glorify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who knows what kinds of mighty things God may do when you ask Him to stretch forth His hand unto healings and signs and wonders for His name? Okay, a few questions to bring it all together. Questions to know and to love and obey God. Why does persecution occur? By way of review, why does persecution occur? Simply put, is when God brings His people together, He unites them around His will, and they are doing it in public, transforming the culture, and this brings the persecutions of darkness against them. This is why it happens. So, by extension, we can say a nation that has been Christianized, that has been brought into submission to the Word of God, persecution will be fairly rare. Because the powers that be will not be abusing their power as tyrants to try to drive the kingdom of God out of their midst. This is why persecution occurs. Now, ultimately, we know behind it all is God's sovereignty, right? God's perfect plan to help us grow up because we need persecution to grow up. Next, right now in today's world, and not just looking at us here at Foothills, but just in general, the church, are God's people of one accord regarding Christ and His person and His work and His kingdom and His plan for His church in this world. We're not, are we? See, when we think about the calling that Christ gave to them, He said the Messiah must die and be raised up. Right? We must preach the atonement of the cross and the victory that is ours in resurrection. And I think most Orthodox churches are doing, preaching the Word of God in that regard. That Jesus Christ is the only way to have your sins forgiven and His righteousness must be applied to you by God in order to have any standing in heaven. Our prayers are accepted before the throne because of Jesus. We are to preach repentance and remission of sin to the whole world. I think that most Orthodox churches are doing this today. Repentance of sin. And they will rely in many ways upon the law of God, the Word of God, to define sin and to preach repentance and then to preach that Christ has come and died and you can be forgiven by trusting in Him, asking God to forgive you in Christ, becoming a Christian. I think most of the Orthodox churches in the world today do a good job on these two things. They really do preach the Bible that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect, sinless life and then went to the cross and took upon Himself the sins of all of those who will trust in Him. And that God raised Him up from the dead, vindicating, proving victory. And that you can live forever and be delivered from the kingdom of darkness by trusting in Jesus. This is the gospel that we've all heard many, many times. 
But how does right eschatology fit into preaching the gospel? How does this fit into God's church, God's people being one mind as we go forth together? The key ideas here, I think, are as follows. Is the church with one mind and one voice preaching that we are to be a transformational people? That the gospel not only transforms individual lives and families and churches, but that it transforms cultures, societies, and nations. Okay? Transformational kingdom. Believe that the Peter and John and the disciples who prayed at that time, they believed in a transformational kingdom. They believed that these kings and these rulers were in big trouble with Jesus Christ. And that they would not succeed. Ultimately, they would find it futile to resist him which points to transformation. Next, are we optimistic or pessimistic about the future of this world before Jesus Christ returns? What do you believe? What does the church believe? What's being preached about what we should expect before Jesus Christ returns? I don't think the church is of one mind on this question, and I think it probably impacts this type of response, this type of understanding regarding persecution is going to be difficult to obtain if you're a hardcore pessimist about what the future holds before Jesus returns. You see, I, I believe the Bible teaches that there won't, be an, there won't be an unbeliever on the earth when Jesus returns. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. I believe the victory of the gospel is going to be so widespread and so beautiful in the earth before Jesus returns that it's going to look almost like Eden. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. Now, I don't think you need to have that optimistic view of the future in order to be of one mind. But I'll tell you, if you think that this world is going to look like it belongs to the devil at the moment Jesus comes back, that's going to impact this kind of being of one mind that I believe they shared at that time. They had an optimistic view of Jesus on His throne, the power of His Spirit poured out, the power of His Word going forth to the, to the earth, that the Messiah would bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Like we studied this morning in our Christian instruction hour. And finally, what is the extent of Christ's rule? What is the extent of his reign to what aspects of life does Christ's reign apply is every aspect of this world personal family church political business ethics is every aspect of this world under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ will every person who walks this earth have to give account to the Lord Jesus Christ as to how they behaved on this earth in their, in their various spheres? Or, or is some aspect of the world just controlled by natural law? Like, for example, politics is only governed by natural law. Whatever that means. So what is the extent of Christ's rule? I think this is another, another question that begins to kind of bring a fracturing, if you will, amongst the people of God in the earth. How do we deal with this? If these observations are accurate, how do we deal with this? Pray.
We must pray. We need to identify it, and we need to pray and ask God to bring us all to the unity of the faith. All of his people all over the whole world to the unity of the faith of who Jesus Christ is right now, of what he has done, and what he is doing right now in the world, and what he's called us, his people, to be involved in, in this brief vapor of a life that we have before we proceed to eternity. Don't waste your life. Next. Overall, would you say that we are together as the people of God? I've already talked about being of one mind. But the other thing was that they were actually together in the same room. They were together. They, They came together. Are God's people together or divided in today's world? We're divided. Right? I mean, most church denominations don't have any clue what other denominations are doing. They'll bump into each other on the mission field and say, hey, what are you doing here? It, it, it appears to me that we have a long way to go as the church in the earth. Let us pray towards that end as well. And yes, I'm imagining one church in the earth. I'm imagining one unified church in the earth somehow by God's glory, by Christ's power. Who knows how it can be done? So what are the components, focusing on today's sermon quickly, what are the components of effective corporate kingdom prayer in the midst of persecution? What are the components of effective corporate kingdom prayer in the midst of persecution? Principles that you can have, that we can have. We need to be together, number one. We need to be of one accord, of one mind, and we need to share our threats together. We need to share our threats together. And make it a common threat that we all share together and we pray together. This moves us into this kind of kingdom prayer where we see and acknowledge aloud before God His power and His promises. We remember them aloud. That's why we have to know His Word. You see how much prayer, kingdom prayer relies upon His Word, knowing His Word. We have to also speak aloud God's total providence in the situation, resting in His plan in the situation. And then... Lay out for him our confident requests. And in this situation, the three requests that they, they laid out was one of them was, look, Lord. So look at this with us, Lord. To go into the threats together with God and one another. Of course, for boldness. To continue to speak the gospel. To live the gospel where he has called us to be in the face of any threats. No matter what threats we might face. And then finally, that we would ask for his divine power to be displayed. As we go, he knows our hearts need these tokens of grace and he is good to us to answer such prayers, to not only give our hearts encouragement, but also to demonstrate to the forces of darkness who God is and that they are not God, but that he is. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, bless us, we pray, to be like these, these saints in Jerusalem. Grant to us, we pray, Lord God, to be together, not just here at Foothills, but with with Christians all around us, to be of one mind, Lord God, to pray together as we share our threats together, to remember your, your providence and your promises and your power, and to seek you, Lord, for boldness, to acknowledge our sinful desire to run away and to not 
face such threats. Lord, help us, we pray, that we would listen to Jesus and see persecution as blessing and that we would rejoice and be exceedingly glad whenever this comes our way. Oh, Father, help us, we pray, that we would go forth and do your will. And finally, we ask, Lord, that you would stretch forth your hand and do mighty works from heaven as the word goes forth from our mouths, that we would see these mighty works, Lord, whether it be salvation of a soul before our very eyes or whether it might be divine miracles of healing or other divine displays of your might. Oh God, we worship you and we praise you and we move ahead now to sing with happy hearts for your goodness and your kindness to us in Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray.